So I'm ably assisted this morning with Jordan, who has done the most amazing background onto our text. For those of you who are brand new today, who are online, who've joined us, and who don't quite understand the context where we are as a church, we are going through a systematic look through and unpacking of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation, or it's not revelations, it's the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the most confused book, misunderstood, scared book that exists in all 66 biblios, or the library of the Bible. Up until now, we've had some phenomenal introductions as to what is going on. What is this background? <clears throat> what does the scene look like going forward? Because we get some really scary things. And Gary and Andre did a phenomenal introduction. Louise and Carly uh, picked that up and continued to expound. But a phenomenal foundation was laid by Sherry in terms of the characters, the creatures, the numbers. What do all of these things mean? I want to remind you from a big picture to stand back and have a look. So the two big picture characters, we have Jesus Christ who reveals himself to John on the island of Patmos. And all of this is happening in and around the year AD 96. So it's Jesus who's doing the speaking and the revealing. It is John who's doing the hearing, the seeing, and the writing. So when you understand that dynamic, it immediately starts to bring home what is going on down in this book. And the structure, particularly in terms of the way that the book has been written, you're going to hear a phraseology or a terminology that comes up over and over and over again. The book of Revelation is full of pattern. God is an, is an organized, structured God. So he's got to repeat things over and over and over again. And you will hear this term, I, I heard and I saw. John says, behold, a door opened in heaven. When you hear that terminology, when you read that text, what is happening is it's an introduction to a new theme, a new window, so to speak. And there are five windows that Sherry adequately and beautifully explained. If you need to go back, I will encourage you to pick it up and start learning and familiarizing yourself with this foundation. And then... John steps forward. Jesus reveals himself in all of his glory, his triumphant magnificence in and amongst his churches and starts to speak. And we find that in the first window, so to speak, we cover the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And here, specifically, we have got seven churches that he speaks to. He picks seven. They aren't the only churches in Asia Minor of the day. But he picks these seven churches 
for a very specific reason. Each letter to each church has a very specific structure and theme. Again, pattern following pattern. And it's there for a reason. Each letter begins with Jesus identifying himself to that church. But he's using language that that church in its specific circumstance would identify with. Then the body of the letter contains words, terms, phrases, and idiom that speaks to its history, its culture, its economics, what is prevalent, what's going on in the church, what's going on socially in that environment at that time. It's stuff that each of those churches will instantly relate to. Remember that this was a letter that was passed throughout all of the churches. So it wasn't a letter, each one that got. It was a full text. And each of those texts had to be read. And when Jesus addresses, and in today's case, the church at Smyrna, they would instantly identify with what he's saying to them. At the end of each of the letters, there's the same phrase, same phraseology, and he talks to, to the overcomer I will give. And in each church, all seven of them, there is a different gift. In today's one, there is the gift of life, and Jordan will explain why he talks about the overcoming, getting this gift of life. And finally, all of them get the same thing. To he who has ears, let him hear. Now, that is that church's specific call into ministry. It has a specific discipleship moment for each church. So that's what we're going to get to. And on that note, Jordan, I turn to you and ask you, tell us what is going on in the church at Smyrna. Okay. So uh, before we get there. Okay. So. Before we get there. Uh, what I would like to do is get to that. That is the word of the Lord. So you talk, I'll drive this thing. Thank you. Tell us what's going on in the background. Okay, so in this background, it actually is quite important because it's it's Brings a lot of clarity. Oh, I'm slipping off my chair. Sorry, <laughs> I'm a little bit short in this chair. So I think I'm just going to stand. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I've watched like Carly and Seven Andre sit just so casually, and <laughs> I'm really too short for this. No, we'll just tell you to stand up. I mean, even though you are, we'll just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we can start properly. So this will just bring clarity to actually. I mean, it was a very short text, but the background does bring a lot of clarity into what was said. And it's also just going to bring a bit of clarity into what's going to be said in the rest of the preach. So Smyrna was the loveliest of all the seven churches. And it actually had the name Crown of Asia or Flower of Asia. So again, just as, um, as you listen, grab hold of, of what's going to be said. Because all of this and even those names will make sense of why Smyrna was called that. So many great writers were born in Smyrna. One of them being Homer. I did have to Google but he was a poet. <laughs> and then later it became home to the Bishop 
practice this so much. Bishop Polycarp, <laughs> he was one of Christianity's most faithful martyrs. I mean, that in itself is pretty amazing. And so this is a very important point, but it's mainly for my life group. Did you guys know that Smyrna still exists today? Uh, <laughs> so it now, <laughs> I wasn't expecting such a response. <laughs> so it now has the name Izmir, and it's the third largest city in modern-day Turkey, which I think is quite incredible because, as we know, Turkey is a majority Muslim country, 99% of its population being Muslim. Yet, in one of their most important cities, there's still a church and they're still Christians. I mean, that just speaks for itself. Um, Smyrna and Ephesus were in a bit of a competition. They wanted to be the first city of Asia. And even on their coins, it said, first city of Asia in size and beauty. So first, Smyrna loved the word first. They went through several once dead, but come back to life experiences. They were actually destroyed in 580 BC and then rebuilt in 290 BC. And they were very proud of their resurrection. Smyrna was very loyal to all things Roman. They loved, their, one of their sayings that they lived by was Rome first in all things. So this loyalty was part of their history before Rome even became big, before they became a superpower. Sorry, hold on. <laughs> um, they also regularly held athletic games. So this is what have been the place that Carly and Seb lived. Um, and they were famous for that throughout Asia. And those who finished the race were given something called a Stephanus, which is the laurel wreath. And you see Louise put it on the little thing. So that's what it is. When I was just saying it to Dale, he said, you should put a picture somewhere. <laughs> um, so then another background issue for Smyrna was that Christian was, um, for Christians, there was a fierce hostility from a segment of the Jewish community. So under Roman law, the Jews were actually exempt from all sacrificial obligations and also military service. And they weren't obligated to worship Caesar by going to the temple, taking incense, throwing it on the altar, and then saying that Caesar is God. But then obviously from that, you can imagine some of the Jews then must have felt a lot of anxiety. And um, also because at this point, their exemption could be taken away at any point by the Senate. And so when Christians, many of whom were Jewish, just plain out refused to participate in the worship of Caesar, it just continued to grow anxiety within the community. Many of the civic leaders thought Christians were members of a Jewish sect. And because of this, some of the Jewish community decided to demonstrate their loyalty to Rome by basically telling on the, the Christians who weren't following the rules of the emperor. And so this then explains why Jesus uses the word blasphemy in chapter 2 verse 9. And then also why he, he uses the politically incorrect saying, a synagogue of Satan. I think I even heard people when it says synagogue of Satan, were like, whoa. <laughs> but these Jews that treated Christians this way were not actually worthy of the title synagogue of the Lord anymore because they were now in the hands of the Lord's enemy. Well done. Nice background. So we fully understand what is going on. Not all rosy as would first appear when you read the text. So in each of these seven messages, Jesus refers to himself in some of the same image as what he did in his initial apocalypse 
that we read about in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. And here, notice how Jesus presents himself to this church. So in his letter, he talks about the first and the last. Notice that first and last language that is now pulling through. They love the word first, and they could identify it. He also speaks to, I'm the one who was dead but has come to life. Again, another reference to their destruction and resurrection. In fact, one of the things that Smyrna was, in fact, so proud of as a city, they were so wealthy that when they were destroyed, they didn't go to Rome and ask for Rome to bail them out financially to rebuild the city. In fact, when Rome offered the money to rebuild that city, Rome first, they went, no, 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 no. We've got enough money. We'll rebuild it ourselves. We know how to resurrect ourselves. And Jesus is talking specifically to this right here. Jesus begins his letter with, I know your tribulation. In other versions of the Bible, it comes forth and it's rendered as, I know your affliction. I know what you're going through. The Greek word, it's a strong Greek word that is used actually in this context, is this word called thlipsis. It talks to a crushing pressure. Not thlipsis, Louise. Th, 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 thlipsis. Jesus says, I know your pressure. Don't fear what you're about to suffer, even though you're going to be suffering unto death. Jesus is saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. Don't be afraid of the pressure as the pressure now begins. Hang on to me. So the first thing that you've got to be asking yourself is, hmm, why is he not lifting the pressure? What did the Christians of Smyrna do to bring on this crushing pressure? How is it that they so displeased the Lord? Had they done something wrong? No, they hadn't done anything wrong. And that's precisely the point. So, Jordan, when you get to read the entire second chapter, you've done quite a lot of work in terms of the background and the history. And you read the second chapter in its entirety. What do you think strikes you the most in this particular letter written to Smyrna as opposed to the pattern and type that has appeared to all the other churches that is written to? So it's like Ian just said, Smyrna actually didn't do anything wrong. And so the biggest difference that we see, even just now from Ephesus to Smyrna, is that there's no word of criticism or correction in this letter to Smyrna. So in the other messages, which we will get to, Jesus always says, I have this against you. And it's only in the letter to Smyrna, and then we'll later see in the letter to Philadelphia where he doesn't say that. So there's no um, call to repentance, and there's no corrective action that, that Jesus gives them. So Ian, will you tell us why? Mm. You see, unlike the disciples um, in the church of Ephesus, they hadn't lost their first love. Unlike the Laodiceans, their love 
hadn't become lukewarm. They hadn't become these lukewarm Christians. Unlike the believers in Pergamum and in Thyatira, they hadn't grown indifferent or compromising in terms of their falsehood and immorality around them. And unlike the church at Sardis, that was this bustling, busy, active community, they weren't spiritually dead. In fact, his word to that church was quite strong. You dead, you stone dead. So this church was passionately faithful. The disciples of Smyrna were doing everything right. They were sold out to the kingdom of God, and they were sold out to walking in his way. And as a consequence of that, they were now coming under this thlipsis, this crushing pressure. When the light begins to shine in darkness, it has two options. Either the light that is now starting to reveal all of the things that is wrong starts to acknowledge and make the changes, or, on the other hand, the darkness tries to come and snuff out the light. And that is exactly what was happening here in the church. The lampstand of the church of Smyrna was, was burning so brightly that God's will for, was being made clear. And the darkness of the city couldn't handle it. And as, that, as a consequence of that, this lampstand in Smyrna was now coming under pressure. Sometimes we need to understand that what is happening in our life, the pressures that we're coming unto, or rather under, are of our own making. We've gone and done something silly. But sometimes the pressure that we come under has got nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with the fact that we are making right, godly, upright, moral, good choices. You know, Paul writes to uh, all of the churches, but he speaks to Timothy in his second letter, in uh, second letter of Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12, and he says to him, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. A stark reminder as to what was going on at the time. So I don't think I was the only one that heard the word flipsis. <laughs> Very odd word. I also don't think I'm the only one who doesn't know what it means. So Ian's going to please explain it to us. You want me to tell you what is going on here? Yes, please. Cool beans. So Jesus uses this word thlipsis. So let's start with what it is. It's, you really are enjoying this, aren't you? It's a New Testament word. It's not used in the normal day, run-of-the-mill context of what we are experiencing in the seemingly broken world that we currently live in. It's always used in conjunction with the advancement of the kingdom or the coming of the kingdom. It's used in that context. So, Thlipsis is this pressure that is experienced as the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings that are in rebellion or standing against God. So you've got your classic theme of darkness versus light 
team lamb versus team dragon situation, and we're going to encounter that further on as we move through the book. So Philipsis is this pressure that is experienced upon this line where the world of justice reigns and comes against this world of injustice. It is the kingdom where you've got these two kingdoms of dark and light coexisting, and they can't. There's this crushing pressure that exists. It's where light comes against darkness, and darkness has to do something. So it's going to rise up in one way or another. So Thlipsis is the pressure experienced where idols are being unmasked. Thlipsis is the pressure experienced where human pride is confronted with a call to repentance. It's experienced where Jesus says, I know your flipsis, and it's not going to go away. That is why, having said this, to follow Jesus into the world is inevitably going to result in you experiencing flipsis. The church at Smyrna was purified through suffering. It was beleaguered. It was downtrodden. It was hated. It was despised. It was persecuted. And it was stomped on. And we, we who seek to be faithful disciples are called where this is going to encounter, particularly in a church, in a city. And it seems to me when I look around, the pressures of life are growing. I ask, can you feel the pressure mounting on various fronts? Can you see the lines that are becoming clearer and clearer as you see the revealed will of God come against human beings who are in direct rebellion to him? Can you see us as a humanity sliding deeper and deeper into immorality and paganism, people who are becoming more intolerant to and hateful to those of us who tend to want to live this transcendent, ethical life of spiritual value? Eclipses is the pressure felt at this direct clashing of values. Teenagers, I want to talk to you. You currently in your situation are walking through Eclipses. I see a whole row of you of college students. The life you live on college campus under temptation and what it is you walk through, and how you, first of all, are acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ and what that looks like in direct contrast to a world who doesn't even want to hear you say it. Parents, I look at you, trying to raise children, following godly discipline, godly morals, and godly practices all the time. You are in direct field line of attack in terms of flipses. And lastly, 
I cast my eyes across this room and I speak to all of you businessmen who are at the cold face of living and working and walking moral, upright, truly honorable, ethical lives in a world that directly opposes you and wishes to knock you off of your perch, smother you, and shut you up. That is the reality of the world of Thlipsis. The more faithful we are to Jesus Christ, the greater the pressure. It's the nature of things. But here, this church, God doesn't lift it. Smyrna was a wealthy city. No one in the city should have been poor. But the fact is, the Christians were. They were poor. They had not given in to this pressure to conform to this custom and to confront to this way of life. In their businesses, they were choosing to follow Jesus every day. And as a result, those who were opposed to them, and I'm now speaking to both the Romans and the Jewish circles, decided that they would not do business with them. In fact, those Christians that were following this way were ostracized. They were pushed out. Their, their businesses were boycotted. Their shops were ransacked. Their homes were pulled apart. Their stuff was confiscated. Does it sound familiar? They were denied employment as a consequence of holding to a higher moral value. It sounds like what many of our brothers and sisters in China and Vietnam and Cambodia and North Korea are living through today. It sounds like what is happening to many Christians in Indonesia and in parts of India today and all of Central Asia. Now, if you don't know where Central Asia is, it's funny countries with odd names you can neither pronounce or locate on a map. Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, to name but a few. I see my friend Josanne sitting there. Josanne is just back from a year of teaching assignment in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. Here's another one. You want to have a fascinating conversation with her, go out and buy her coffee. It'll be the best coffee you're going to enjoy this year. Ask her to share with you what it was like to be a single Christian female working in a Central Asian country. You can't freely associate. You may not openly talk. You cannot read a Bible. You're constantly being watched. You're constantly living under pressure. At best, she walked in daily fear of her visa being revoked and her being smothered out and pushed out the country. At best. At worst, it was jail and a whole lot worse. Go and have a coffee with her. By the way, I haven't just hung her out to dry. I did ask her for permission to reference her. But an amazing, an amazing story. Jesus says, I know your pressure. Don't 
fear what you're about to suffer. Some of you are going to be beaten and some of you are going to be thrown in jail. They refused in Smyrna to bow to this emperor cult. I think Gary and Andre spoke beautifully about what was going on. Others are going to come under pressure in a different way. They are going to be forced as they are and were in Smyrna to denounce Jesus Christ. And in Smyrna, it was at one of two ways, either at the point of a sword or even worse, by death in flames. But there was this invisible component that was, crushing pre- uh, that was causing this crushing pressure, or rather, I should say, <laughs> there was primarily this invisible component that was causing this crushing pressure. And Jesus says, the devil is going to throw some of you in prison. We're reminded by Jesus yet again that things are not as they seem. What you are seeing is not necessarily what is happening. What you are seeing is not necessarily what is happening. The disciples in Smyrna were experiencing this because they were living this godly life. They were seeking first the kingdom of God, as we're implored to in Matthew 6.33. And guess what? The city didn't like it. So now, Ian, you've mentioned Team Dragon, Kingdom of Darkness, and now the devil. So can you just go into that? How did that all come in? So, Jordan, if we had a video camera and we videoed the sequence of events that's happening in the city of Smyrna, we would see Roman police cheered on by a crowd as they go after the so-called religious zealots, um, as they round them up, handcuff them, beat them, and throw them into jail. I mean, that was, that's what you would see. You'd see nothing else. And it's as Jesus says in verse 10, the devil is going to throw you in jail. So that's what you see. What is Jesus saying? He's saying and reminding us, things are not as they seem. He's waking the church of Smyrna up to this reality that what is going on underneath, there's more to it than meets the naked eye. He's saying to the church of Smyrna, wake up, look, and see it is the devil. He is after you. Behind these threatened political forces and these hostile religious forces, is a power way more potent. The devil is out to destroy Jesus Christ. And he's out to destroy everything that Jesus has made. The devil will throw some of you in prison. He's reminding them and us that in this case, the opposition is spiritual. So the pressure coming down on Smyrna was not simply a socio-political pressure that they were experiencing. So this equation wasn't simply a simple one of pressure is being resulted or caused by a threatened political opposition and a hostile uh, spiritual or religious opposition. Nothing to do with that. 
the true theory or formula actually is pressure is this threatened political pressure, this threatened hostile pressure, plus the spiritual forces of evil manipulating both. That was really what was going on. And it's the same for us. Behind this growing moral morass and mess is the spirit of darkness. Behind this escalating violence is nothing more than the Lord of violence. Don't know if you saw the news headlines on Thursday or Friday night of what went down in the city of Ekuruleni with the council vote. We reminded yet again that things are not as they seem. What you're seeing is not necessarily what's happening. What needs to be strongly emphasized is that the disciples of Smyrna were not actually the intended target. The intended target of Satan's ultimate pressure was actually Jesus. That's who the intended target is. But since Jesus had defeated Satan at the cross and the tomb was empty, Satan can't hurt him. There's nobody to hurt. So what does he do? He comes after us. Comes after you. Comes after me. And in this case, he was coming after the church at Smyrna. What Jesus is showing the church is what John develops later on. And we're going to pick this up in uh, Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14. He lets us in onto the cosmic battle. And that cosmic battle is pictured as this battle between a dragon and a lamb, between um, the forces of good and evil. And the dragon is now setting out to try to destroy the lamb. But the dragon fails. And in his attempt to destroy the lamb, it results in his own destruction. So you see what is left of the dragon in this last throes of defeat. He starts lashing out at the lamb, but he can't touch him. So who does he go after? He comes after us. He's coming after the church at Smyrna. And he does this very cleverly and cunningly. He does it using this, these two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the lamb. And in Revelation chapter 13, as we start to unpack that later on, we're going to see that these two beasts actually are political systems on the one hand and religious systems on the other that are interdependent and in, in many ways connect in synchronicity with each other. But these two various opposing systems, are they themselves manipulated by the chief manipulator. The lamb's people are not the target. The, the largest target is Jesus Christ. The dragon hates the lamb. Let me state this so that it's out in the open once and for all. The devil doesn't care about you. What he cares about is Jesus in you. The brighter Jesus shines, the more he's coming after you. The more you stand up and hold up your lampstand, the more you take 
your moral cross and compass, the bigger the target on your back, it has got nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with Jesus. Yeah, so now this is seeming like it's quite intense. <laughs> and <laughs> obviously, Ian just explained this last part. And I think we often, we know with our heads how to, you know, how to do things. We know how to get through this, but it's, it's sometimes hard to actually act it out. So, I mean, the big question in the end actually becomes how. Mm. So, Very good. Like Ian, can you explain to us how do we keep faith under pressure mm. and how do we nurture that faith that overcomes fear? You know, Jordan, I think we should take comfort from the words that Jesus himself speaks to the church. And he says, I know you're crushing pressure. And instead of promising to immediately lift this pressure, as we would, naturally we cry out, take it away. That's our normal humanity that's screaming at us. Jesus says no. So what he's doing is he's preparing us to handle this crushing pressure. Pressure becomes, or as I've just said, is as a result of us getting closer to Jesus, who's really the intended target. But he gives us two commands, and those two commands are firstly, don't be afraid. Secondly, he says, be faithful. Hmm. The second of the four things that Jesus gives us is this word test, this threatened political force this hostile religious force. They have a purpose with this pressure, but don't forget that the evil one has a purpose, but so does Jesus. And he allows it to come upon us to test us. The word Jesus uses here is to prove, but it also means more than the words to prove because he's directly speaking to us and he's speaking to improve. And he's imploring us to stand up and effectively be more. Jesus, was, or rather Jesus' enemy, is doing his utmost then, as he does now, to whether it's teenagers or parents or businessmen, to tempt us to fall off the perch, to wander astray and to follow him. But Jesus takes that temptation and swings it around. He uses it to improve our faith. Which tells us that the, what the Lord thinks of the church actually. And he thinks sometimes, get this, that sporadic pressure is actually good for the church. Philipsis refines the church and it strips away the excess baggage. Hard pull to swallow. Philipsis brings us back to bottom line essentials. Bottom line essentials being Jesus himself, who is our only hope and security. And thirdly, Jesus has final authority over this pressure. Notice what he says to the church in verse uh, chapter, uh, in verse two, uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, whether he means a literal 10 days or whether it's a short period of time, we can't know. We can't judge that. So in that day, you'll recall from the unpacking that had been done 
by the previous speakers. That 10 was the human term that spoke to perfection. Five fingers on each hand, 10. Five toes on each foot, 10. That was a complete trial. So 10 days is what Jesus says. Now, I want you to look back at that verse. What Jesus is saying here is both a pronouncement, but more importantly, church, it's a declaration. The political and religious forces cannot and will not have free will and reign. The spiritual darkness and the spiritual forces of darkness are being determined. They exist purely by the permission of Jesus Christ. And God has limited their power. Evil is on a leash. And that pressure has a limit. And Jesus says, 10 days. It's a declaration. And lastly, he says to the overcomers, I'll give you the crown of life. You're not going to be hurt by the second death. So as I said earlier in the pre-meeting, let me just state the obvious and let's get it out of the way. None of us are going to exit out of this thing alive. We're all going out. We're going to shuffle out in a wooden box. Is what it is. We don't get out of us alive. That's the first death. But Jesus is speaking here very clearly to a time where he comes back. And there will most certainly be a second death. We do not wish to face that. Eternal damnation. Separation from God for all eternity. So he says to us, remember crowns. Now you will recall back to what Jordan said in the beginning. This is crown language. This is Smyrna language, where he's talking directly to them of the day that they could relate to. And the second is Jesus' promise that we aren't going to be hurt by the second death. Do you know that John refers to the second death another three times only, throughout the journey of the entire book of the revelation of Jesus Christ? There are three other times where it comes up, and he reminds us that we're not going to go through this. We'll pick it up in chapter 20, verse 6. We're going to pick it up in chapter 20, verse 14. And then just towards the end in chapter 21, verse 8, we'll hear it for the last time. So the first death, we're going to die. It's the second death that we aren't going to die. It's this immunity from the second death that is the real issue. That's the crux of the matter. To those who remain loyal, you will not get the second death. We enter this thing called eternal life. So now I've got a question for you. Why would you be prepared to compromise in this life? Why would you be prepared to compromise? Knowing full well, at the end of the road is Jesus with the crown of life, your reward in heaven. I know your pressure, says the Lord. So Ian's kind of, he's spoken how the, the closer we become to Jesus, the more pressure comes on, the, the lighter he is in our lives, the more pressure, the more things come on. So I don't, I think some of us have had these thoughts 
before. Like surely there's an easier way that we can go to avoid the pain, to avoid the drama, to avoid the pressure. And like there, there must be some other way. Um, and I mean, the only other way is you really just don't get serious about Jesus, about your love for him, your relationship with him. Kind of just go with the flow, settle for the comfortable, like the watered water down discipleship with him. And you just settle for like status quo blessing kind of discipleship. And surely from that, then there's no pressure. But then also from that, it means there's no passion. So, yeah. Very true. You know, Jesus gives us some big handles to hold on to. Listen to his words. This is the one who says, I know your pressure. And he says, I know it the nature of things, I cannot lift it. I'll sustain you in it, yes. I'll use it for my glory, yes. But lift it, no. And it's as you've just said, Slipsis is as a result of the presence of Jesus. The bigger the Slipsis, the bigger the presence. As we progress through this book of Revelation, we're going to see the reality of a God who infinitely is patient and loving. And he's ultimately in control. And he is God. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. He's on the throne. And he is ultimately in charge of human history. Don't let that ever detract you. He is the one to cling to. It is with the, the certainty of Jesus Christ in your life that you are going to navigate this path that has been laid before you. Yeah. There was obviously, like the ch beginning, the Church of Smyrna, it, sound, it sounds like one of the best churches. When I was reading it, I thought, okay, this is great. Then obviously, as Ian was speaking, like there was this heaviness, this intensity of what actually they went through and what we then go through. And I love how Ian ended it now because in all of this, but specifically right now, it's Jesus. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is amazing. And a lot of us have had encounters with Jesus where we've really seen who he is. We've really seen his love. There is still this thing of like, I don't want to go through the pressure. I don't want to deal with the persecution. This, it, it's scary when you think about it. And that's why we have community. That's why we have people, we're all in different stages. And so even in this, I just want to encourage you that if at any point, and even after today where you're sitting and you're going, I love Jesus, but I don't know, this, this is just hectic. Like that's when we come together and you go to your life group leaders, you come, go to the elders, you... You go to people who you are comfortable with in the church, and we do this together. And that's the beauty of this church. It's the beauty of community, but it's the beauty of Jesus. And sometimes it's important that we do it with him on our own, but we have community for a reason. And so the point is Jesus is beautiful. He loves you. He loves us. He loves Lifehouse Church. And he just wants to pour out his love over this church and every single one of you sitting in here. Thank you, Jordan. I'd like to ask all of you who are able-bodied at the end of that to please stand.